John 1, 19 to 34. The page number in the Pew Bible is 71 in the New Testament. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. As Isaiah the prophet said, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the day that you have given us. And um, <laughs> first day, my 36th year. And um, you have been so faithful. You've been so faithful, Lord. And I thank you and I praise you in the midst of the congregation. In the midst of the congregation, I have and I will continue to sing your praise, Lord. You have cleansed and sanctified me. You yourself have set, have set me free. And I have nothing but what you've given me in Christ. And I'm so thankful that I have nothing but him. I pray for your blessing to be with us this morning, Lord. Please let your word impact us the way it ought to. Lord, let us receive and hear, preach your word in the way and in the manner that we ought to. And uh, may your Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit whom you've given us, Lord Jesus, may, may he be mightily among us this morning. May he blow out the dust in our temples and fill us with the light of his glory 
pointing to the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. We pray you'd be here among us, Lord, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, and for our eternal good in you. Do you bless this passage for our spiritual good this morning, Lord? Help us receive what you've prepared for us in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, unfortunately, I was so consumed with the Sunday school class that I forgot to type my notes out. And I write my notes really small, so these are with us today. You just have to get over it. Um, We're entering now into the next section of the Gospel of John, which is John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. We've spent a number of weeks, I think it was 14 weeks, walking through the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And uh, we've seen many, many things in those verses, and we're going to see them again as we walk through the rest of the Gospel. Now, John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34, begins a period of accounting for one week in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. So from John chapter 1, verse 19, down through chapter 2, verse 11, we have a one-week time period where uh, the Apostle John is highlighting for us the significance of the revelation of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. This is really remarkable to see what John's doing here in this section. Now, I've mentioned before that I believe the actual introduction of this book is what we're going to look at this week and next week and the week after in the closing of John chapter 1. That this is really the invitation of the Apostle John calling us to come with him into this scene of beholding the glory of the Messiah. What we're being set up for at the end of chapter 1 is really, it's like the stage is being set for the glory of Jesus to be put on full display. And right now we're being invited to come and take our seats in the congregation of the saints and behold the glory that's been revealed. And so John chapter 1 verses 19 or verse 19 begins a period of one week where we are looking at the glory of the Messiah who has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Now this whole scene that we're looking at today, verses 19 through 34, really revolves around two questions. One is relating to the, well both of them are relating to uh, John the Baptist. One question is, who is John? And then the second question is, why is John baptizing? So those are kind of the two main thoughts that we're looking at today as we walk through this passage. Number one, who is John? And number two, why is he baptizing? Now, we've seen from verses 1 through 18 many things about John already. In verses 6 through 8, we are told that John came in order to bear witness about the light. Verse 9 says, the light, the true light, was coming into the world. The very same light that has been shining upon men from the very beginning. The one who has always been the mediator of true knowledge and fellowship and worship of God, Jesus Christ. The one who from the beginning has been with us and among us and the Son of God, shining his light among us. That one was coming into the world. And in verses 6 and 7, we learn that God sent forth John in order to be a witness for that light, so that all might hear the message of John and put their faith in the light that has come. 
In verse 15, we find the substance of what John was testifying about concerning the light. He was testifying about the light's greatness, saying that one is coming after me who is greater than I am. He's of higher rank than I. I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. He's coming, and I'm coming here to announce his coming. And Jesus himself says of John in John chapter 5, verses 35 through, uh, or excuse me, verse 35, that John was a burning and shining light who came to bear witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here in this passage, what we're focusing on is really more of the detail in regard to John's witness. We're picking up uh, on the scene in the wilderness where John was baptizing where this party has been sent to John from Jews in Jerusalem. Now, the first thing that stands out to me, or the first thing that stood out to me whenever I was working through this passage, is the fact that John's ministry could not be ignored. The ministry of John the Baptist was not something that the people in the lands of Judea could ignore. In John chapter 1, verse 28, we learn that all of these events that John's writing about here in this passage took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, there's, de there's debate about where exactly this was, but I believe that this is at the archaeological site that we now know as Bethbara. I believe that that's the right terminology. Uh, King James, New King James, guys, it's Bethbara, right? Put you on the spot. Yeah. They're like, wait, what? What'd you say? Are you saying something? Anyway, this location is about 20 to 25 miles east of the city of Jerusalem. So when you leave Jerusalem, you cross over tons of mountainous terrain. You go up just slightly and you hit Jericho. And then you continue to go across from Jericho over the Jordan River. You exit the promised land, the boundaries of the promised land. And right on the other side of that river, you have Bethany beyond the Jordan. Bethbara. Is that right? Yeah, thank you. Now, in Luke, this is, this is a place in the wilderness. It's not surrounded by, by people. You know, it's not a very uh, bustling and busy location. It is out in the middle of nowhere. Now, we learn in Luke chapter 1, verse 80, that John actually grew up in the wilderness. This is where he was raised from his childhood. And in Luke chapter 3, verse 2, this is where John was when the word of the Lord came to him and called him to begin his ministry. He was out in the wilderness. Now, what's remarkable to me is that even out in the wilderness, the faithful ministry of John created such a stir that the people noticed 25 miles away. Now, it's hard for us to envision the impact of that because 25 miles for us, most of us, some of us drove 25 miles to get here this morning. We, with our technology and our ability to, to move around, 25 miles doesn't seem like that long of a distance. Right? But think about something, anything that you've heard happening with one person 25 miles away that did not come to you through your phone or through the news on the television. It's pretty significant. When John hit the scene and he was faithfully ministering for the sake of the light, he hit it with a splash. This wasn't some quiet incident that was taking place out in the wilderness. Just this, this some small movement among a minority of people in the, in the lands of Judea. This was a massive movement that had been struck by the Spirit of God through John the Baptist. And people took notice.
Now that's significant because, as I mentioned and when we were covering chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, John was not in the city of Jerusalem rubbing shoulders with the religious leaders of his day. He wasn't trying to make connections in Jerusalem so that he could somehow gain an opportunity to declare his message to the Jews who were in Jerusalem. He wasn't hanging around the temple and trying to make a name for himself so that eventually they would give him that opportunity. John the Baptist was a priest. He had every right to be there in the temple. And yet here he is out in the wilderness. And that is where the Lord chose to use him to make an impact for the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we move on from that point, let me just make a point of application. This is something that Christians in our day really need to grasp. Impactful ministry for the Lord does not come about through connections and trying to maneuver and position ourselves to be in the right place at the right time among the powerful and influential. So many people in our day believe that the only way that Christianity is going to make any impact in this world is if somehow we make connections with those who have authority in this world. Somehow we make connections with those who are in government. Somehow we make connections with legislators and, and governors and judges. And, and let me be clear, that is, that is right and that is good, and we need to be pressing the faith into those areas of influence. How else are we going to see the downfall and the crumbling of things like abortion in our day, the murder of a child? Praise God that the Supreme Court ruled the way it ruled. However, it did not go far enough. It did not press the constitutional rights of the being that is in the womb. It did not go far enough. And so the job is not done just because the Supreme Court ruled that this is not a constitutional issue. They have totally missed the ball on this. It is a constitutional issue. Very much so. More than that, it's a... It's, it's a it is an issue of integrity and faithfulness before God, our creator, that we as Christians stand up and press these issues in the public sphere. Yes, that might invite trouble, but we cannot be afraid of that. Since when has preaching the gospel ever been something that did not invite opposition? We've become so comfortable and so, so, so comfortable being quiet. And we think that all of our witness for the gospel of Christ is going to happen simply through the acts and, the, and, the, and the, the deeds that we do. Now that's a very important part of our witness for Christ. We ought to let the light of God shine through the good deeds that we do. That's Matthew 5.16. It's very true. However, that's not enough. We have to preach the gospel. We have to preach the truth. We have to make the truth known and press the truth in upon a dark, loving culture. And they're going to hate it. But we've got to do it with love. We've got to do it with compassion. We've got to do it with mercy and patience. We have to suffer long with the ungodly in our world if we're going to make any gains for the sake of righteousness. That was really a parenthesis. We ought to be pressing these things in the public sphere. But we, never, we need to make sure that we never confuse that kind of labor with true, faithful gospel ministry. John wasn't maneuvering among the political elites of his day. He wasn't camped, in other words, he wasn't camped out in Washington, D.C. or in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was out in the middle of nowhere. And what was he doing there? 
He was preaching the gospel. That's what Luke 3 tells us. He was preaching the gospel of Jesus. He was declaring a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the Lord used that. He didn't set up a tent. He didn't pass out flyers. He just stood out in the middle of nowhere and started preaching. And what did God do? God sparked a revival. Translate that into your own experience, your own life. Beloved, God is not waiting on you to become some great missionary out on the front lines in China in order to use you to make an impact for his kingdom. Now, if that's where you're being called, praise God, we will support you and we will send you on your way with the full fullness of our blessing. You will be an apostle of Oak Ridge Community Church. But you don't have to do something like that in order to make an impact for the kingdom of Christ in this world. You simply have to be faithful with where the Lord has called you to be. In your homes, mothers, when you are raising your children in the home, that is where the kingdom of Christ advances. In those moments where you have to deal patiently with your children and you feel exasperated and you feel run down and utterly defeated, like, is anything I'm saying to this child getting through? You've got to understand that right at that point, that's where the kingdom of Christ presses forward. That's where you've got to be faithful. That's where you have to endure. Husbands, when you come home from work, when you are tired and just worn out because you've been working long days. I mean, this last week, guys, I put in 90 hours of work. I'm exhausted. But when you get home and you walk through that door, men, that's where your ministry begins. It's not time for you to sit down and take it easy, turn on the television, listen to radio, do your own thing. That's when you have to get busy focusing on the main ministry that the Lord has provided for you. Ministering to your wife. Ministering to your children. Children, listen to me. All the kids, look at me. Everybody, I want to see every, all the little beady eyes of all the children in the room. And the, and the beautiful smiles. I looked at someone just a second who's not a child, but she looks very young. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> the kingdom of Christ advances through you in the home too. Did you know that? Did you know that you can make an impact for the kingdom of Jesus Christ in this world? Do you know how? By being faithful to do the will of God where he has placed you. See, really, it's, it's about making every moment holy. That's the Christian life. Make every moment holy. Sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord in your heart, no matter where you are and no matter what you're doing. And let the sanctity of Christ's name bleed out from you. And you will make an impact for the kingdom of heaven. Not, without the fanfare, you don't need all the show. You just need to dedicate yourself and devote yourself to being faithful. John did that out in the wilderness, out in the middle of nowhere. And the Lord brought about a revival. One man, the Lord brought a revival. What if the entire church began living with the same kind of radical abandonment unto the will of God that we see in, the apostle, or in, the, in uh, John the Baptist? All right, that's, that's, that's a point, one point. The ministry of John 
could not be ignored. Not because John was so dynamic, but because the Spirit of God would not let his message go unheard. So much so that we find in John chapter 1, verse 19, this group of scribes and Levites, or priests and Levites, being sent from the Jews. Now, who are the Jews? Anyone want to take a stab at that? Who are the Jews? Just one word I'm looking for. It's in verse 24. The Jews described here are the Pharisees. This is one of John's favorite ways of describing the religious leaders in, uh, in Israel, or in the, in the lands of Judea at the time. Jewish leaders, he describes them very often as the Jews. And so we'll go through long sections in the Gospel of John where the religious leaders are only identified as the Jews, in distinction from the Jewish people. John chapter 17 verse, excuse me, John chapter 7 verse 13 is an example of that. I don't think I have that there. But the Jews were these Pharisees in Jerusalem. And they had heard about what was going on with John out in the wilderness. And so what do they do? They send a delegation. They send an investigative party to go find out what's happening with John out in the wilderness. Now this is not, the, all the evidence seems to point to the fact that this is not the first interaction that the Pharisees have had with John. If you remember, the Gospel of John is unique in its presentation of the events of Jesus' life. It's not like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Why is that? It's because Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written earlier than the Gospel of John, and John is not trying to communicate the same information that's already been communicated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's trying to fill in the picture a little bit more so that we have a fuller grasp of the glory that was revealed in Jesus. And so what we have here is probably an account with John the Baptist that took place after the initial accounts with John the Baptist that are com communicated in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, if you remember those accounts, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, for example, that's where John the Baptist calls the Pharisees and the scribes who came to be baptized a brood of vipers. He tells them that they themselves need to flee from the wrath of God. Now, that's a problem for the Pharisee. Because the Pharisee believed that he knew the law of God, that he was in right relationship with God, that, that actually, the, you know what Pharisee means. Do you know what Pharisee means? It means distinguished or separated, divided from among the rest. So, really, you could think of the concept of sanctified, made holy. They were separated unto God. That's what the name Pharisee is really communicating. And they actually believed that that was them. <laughs> they embodied what it meant to be separated unto God, to be distinguished from the common people. And they believed that they knew the law and they knew how to fulfill it. You can see that in John chapter 7, verse 48 and 49, where they talk about, um, they talk about the crowd that is kind of going after Jesus, beginning to follow him. And they say, has any of the Pharisees believed in him? No. They haven't believed in him. But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. And you can see in that this assumption. The crowd may not know the law, but we do. We know the law, and we're not following after this guy who claims to be the Messiah. Right. So they, they not only believed that they upheld the law, but they also, looked upon dis, they also looked upon the normal, everyday, average people with disdain. And so when John calls them a brood of vipers... And he says to them, you are still under the wrath of God and you need to flee from that wrath if you're going to be in a right relationship with God. They didn't take that very well. 
What we have here is them following up probably on that incident. Rather than coming themselves, they send forth Levites and priests. Now, why would they send forth Levites and priests? Well, I believe that the Levites and the priests, if you think about it, they were the ones who were trained in ritual ceremony in cleansing law. So they were the ones who were trained with how to be ceremonially clean in order to worship God and what they believed required the ceremonial cleansing that was required in order to be a right, in a right relationship with God. So they send forth these priests, they send forth these Levites to go interact with John and to evaluate what he's doing and see if it actually squares up with the law of God. So what they're trying to do is catch him. They're trying to discredit his ministry. That's what's happening here. And so these scribes, or excuse me, these priests and these Levites who are probably the most skilled in the purity laws of the Old Testament, they come to John and they want to ask him a question. They want to ask him, who are you, John? Specifically, there are three things in mind. They want to know three things about who John is claiming to be. First of all, they ask him, are you the Christ? And you can, we see that by what's inferred there in verse 20, or we infer that from what's communicated in verse 20. Verse 19, they come and they ask, who are you? In verse 20, John responds by saying, he confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, in our text, it doesn't say they were asking if you were the Christ. They asked who you are. Well, John responds saying, I'm not the Christ. Well, by that, we know they were asking him, are you the Messiah? And we know the Messiah, the messianic figure. They're asking, are you the one from Psalm 2? Are you the holy anointed one whose fetters are... are, are who's united with, with Yahweh and whose fetters are latched upon all of us? Are you the king of Israel? Are you the one whom God has appointed to be the ruler of the Jews? The Psalm 110, are you the one whom the Lord is declaring to you to sit at his right hand? Are you the one from Daniel 9, chapter, uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 26, the one who comes to bring in everlasting deliverance for the people of God? Is that you? John says, No. That's not me. Well, if he's not the Christ, the next thing that they want to know is, well, then are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? John says, no, I'm not Elijah. You remember who Elijah was. Elijah was the beginning and really the model of this group of Old Testament people that we call the prophets. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, we find Elijah appearing in Israel at a time of corruption and great idolatry, coming to the people of Israel and calling them to return back to faithfulness to the Lord. Turn away from Baal and come back to Yahweh. If Yahweh is God, then serve him as God. That was Elijah's message. In Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, the Lord had promised that before his coming in the Messiah, Elijah the prophet would come again. He would reappear. And so with that in mind, these priests and Levites are asking John, are you that Elijah? Are you the Elijah that was promised right here? Have you come? And are you the Elijah? John says, no, I'm not. Now that presents a problem. Because in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, Jesus clearly identifies John as the prophet Elijah who was to come. 
So are John and Jesus not on the same page here? Do they have two different conceptions of who John the Baptist is? Well, no, that's not the case. John knew full well that he was the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. He knew that because of what the angel Gabriel said to his father. He knew that because of what his father said about him at the end of Luke chapter 1. He knew that he was the fulfillment of uh, this prophecy concerning Elijah the prophet. But he did not say that to the Levites and priests because what John meant by being the fulfillment of Elijah is not what they understood the fulfillment of Elijah to be. So he was not going to lend himself to their misunderstanding of the coming of the prophet of Elijah. This is really has an important application to how we interpret Old Testament prophecy. The scribes and the Levites and the priests, the Pharisees, they interpreted Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, literally. Meaning, they interpreted, this, they interpreted this passage as literally speaking of the physical return of the actual man, Elijah. Now Luke chapter 1, verse 17, makes clear that John fulfills this prophecy not because he is literally the man Elijah, but because he comes in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. You see that? It's not a literal fulfillment that Elijah was going to come back down out of heaven and minister among the Israelites. It was that one was going to come with the same quality and the same flavor and the same flair to his ministry that the prophet Elijah had. He was going to come in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. Now, the application point there, we need to be really careful when we're interpreting the Old Testament. Because if we adopt a hyper, let me put it this way, these people adopted a hyper-literalism in interpreting the Old Testament, and it caused them to miss out on what was taking place right in front of them. We can't be hyper-literal in how we understand the fulfillment of the Old Testament. We have to look to the New Testament and find out how the Spirit of God has interpreted the Old Testament for us. Just a small little application. I guess that's free. I don't know. You guys pay me, so it's probably not free. <laughs> Was he Elijah? John says no. At least not in the sense that they interpreted Elijah. Well, if he wasn't the Christ and he wasn't Elijah, then was he the prophet? You guys know what prophet they're talking about. God swore through Moses in Deuteronomy 18.18 18, that he would raise up another prophet like Moses from among the brethren of Israel and that the Lord would put his words in that prophet's mouth and whoever did not listen to that prophet would be cut off from among his people. So here the Levites and the priests are coming to John the Baptist and they're saying, okay, if you're not the Christ and you're not Elijah, then are you the prophet? Are you the one that the Lord spoke about back in Deuteronomy 18? And John very resolutely says, no. No, I am not. Now, what's interesting here in John's responses to the Levites and the priest is that John is answering their questions, but he's not giving them the answer that they're looking for. He's telling them the right answer to their questions, but he's not giving them everything that they want. Why is he not doing that? Well, because he knew that they were not seeking true answers in faith from John. 
They weren't truly trying to understand who he was and why he came and what it means for their relationship with God, what the Lord was speaking to them through John. They were coming to him in order to discredit his ministry and set a trap for him. It's the same thing they do with Jesus later on in the gospel. Now, we can see how exasperated they were with John in light of all his answers in verse 22. When, after he says, nope, I'm not the Christ, nope, I'm not Elijah, no, I'm not the prophet. They said to him then, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? You can hear frustration in, that, in those questions. And John answers them saying, well, if you want to know who I am, then hear what I say. I am nothing. I claim to be no one. I am only a voice. I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, and he's applying that to himself. This is John's answer to their question, who are you, John? Well, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah the way you understand it. I'm not the prophet. I'm simply a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now, a question that comes to my mind after looking at that is, why were these men so concerned to know who John was? Why were they pressing him like this in order to find out who he was? Well, I believe that the answer to that is found in what John was doing. In their minds, what John the Baptist was doing out in the wilderness required a special kind of authority. It required that the person doing what John was doing needed to be someone very important. Someone who had been declared to be sent by God because of the radical transforming work that John was declaring needed to be done. See, John was pressing in upon these people for reform. He was calling them to the carpet and he was saying, listen, your entire construct of religion is false and you need to repent of all of it and come back to the Lord. Well, the question in light of something like that is, well, who are you to say such a thing? Are you the Christ? Are you the one whom the Lord's going to send to be our Savior? No, I'm not. Well, then who gives you the right to say something like that? Well, are you Elijah? Are you the one that came and called Israel back to the Lord at the prophets of Baal? No, I'm not him. Well, then why are you calling us back to Yahweh in the same way? Are you the prophet? No, I'm not. Well, then why should we listen to anything you have to say? Because we know the Lord, and you're saying that we don't know the Lord. Why should we listen to you? They immediately turn from asking him who he is to why he is baptizing in verse 25. They ask him, well, if you are not the Christ, and you are not Elijah, nor the prophet, then why are you baptizing? Why are you doing what you're doing if you're not any of these men? Well, John answers that really in two ways. The first answer he gives is really in his answer to the first question. Why is John baptizing? Well, he's baptizing because he is seeking to make straight the way of the Lord. He is seeking to prepare the hearts of the people to turn to the Lord when he comes. 
According to Luke chapter 3, verse 3, John came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4 makes clear that the way, or excuse me, verse 4 makes clear that this is the way that he was going to be making the Lord's way ready. This is how he was going to be preparing the people for the coming of the Lord. It was through this baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, why would a baptism like that be so disturbing to the Jews? They had practiced baptism for decades, for centuries by this point. Baptism by immersion. They had called, if you were a Gentile and you wanted to convert to Judaism and become one of them among the people, they would cause you, they would, they would call you to submit to a baptism by immersion. And what you were doing in that baptism is you were renouncing all of your Gentileness and you were rising up to walk in a new life attached to a Jewish heritage. They've been doing that for centuries. That's what it meant to make them a proselyte, right? To go out into the Gentile nations and bring them in to the fold. What was so offensive about John's baptism? What made it so unique from what they were doing prior to that? Well, what was so unique and what was so offensive was that John was taking something that they had directed towards the Gentiles... And he is turning it towards the Jews and saying, you have to do the same thing if you're going to be in a right relationship with God. In Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, we read of him calling the, the Jews a brood of vipers. That is, they were descendants of snakes. That's pretty vivid imagery. Right? Who is the greatest enemy in all the Bible? It's the snake that appears in Genesis chapter 3. And here John is calling them descendants of snakes and saying, you need to repent if you're going to be made right with God. He says, the wrath of God is abiding on you. And we see that in the way that he describes it. He says, you need to flee from the wrath of God that's coming. He says that they needed to flee. And, and pay attention to this. It's not that they needed to flee to the temple. It's not that they needed to flee to, to make sacrifices. It's not that they needed to flee to the high priest in Jerusalem or to the traditions that the Jews had set for following after the Lord. What they needed to do was to flee to God by adopting a lifestyle of repentance. And if they didn't do that, John says the axe of judgment is already in God's hand and is set at the root and it is ready to chop down every tree that does not bear good fruit and throw it into the fire. That language there that John's using of chopping it down, cutting it down, throwing it into the fire, that's all language that is, that is describing the wrath and the judgment of God from the book of Isaiah. So in Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about the majority of Israel being cut down until there's nothing but a stump left. And the stump is that which is holy. Right? Or Isaiah 66, it talks about the Lord pouring out his wrath upon the nations. It uses language of fire, pouring out upon them fire as his rebuke to them. What John is doing is he's taking these descriptions of the wrath of God against the enemies of God, and he's directing them right at the Jewish people, and he's saying, you are these enemies. You need to repent. You are the one that's going to be chopped off if you don't turn. That's offensive. Are you guys following me? Are you with me? Okay. I don't know that I've recovered from the first from the Sunday school class. So John's baptism was so offensive to the Jewish people because it was called listen to me. 
John's baptism was so offensive because it was calling Jews to renounce their hope in Jewishness. It was calling Jews to renounce their hope in Jewishness and to seek a true relationship with Yahweh at the heart level. Not at the level of traditions. Not at the level of ritual cleansing and practices that they had adopted, but at the level of the heart. Become a true Jew with a circumcised heart. That's what John was saying. And you know the language. He came to level off the mountains, right? He came to humble the proud, to knock them down from their high place, and to put them on a level plane so that when the glory of the Lord was revealed, they'd be able to see it. They would not, that view of God's glory in Christ would not be obstructed by their own pride. But then he also came to raise up the valleys, right? To make everyone level. To bring those who were lowly out of the pit. To bring those who were trapped in sin and despair and despondency. To bring them up to a level plane so that everyone could see the glory of the salvation the Lord was giving in Jesus Christ. That was John's ministry. Oh, man. Level it, level it off and bring people to put their hope and their trust in the one who is coming. We even see John calling the Jews to renounce their Jewishness, their hope in being Jewish, I should say, in order to have a right relationship with God. We see that even in the location where John the Baptist is. And this is really interesting. I thought this was pretty cool. You may not, but it was, it was pretty interesting to me. I've got some maps there, Hans. Do you see those? Can you click on that first one? It says in John chapter 1, verse 28, that these things were happening in Bethany beyond the Jordan. Now, you know what else happened at Bethany beyond the Jordan? Right at that location? You can't read this. Man, I'm just not good at judging this, am I? It says... I don't have my pointer. It says that, that one right there, it says, Elijah taken up by whirlwind into heaven. Do you see where it's pointing? So you've got the black dot over here, which is Jericho, and you just go straight east, and that's where they believe Elijah was taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And they get that from the text in 2 Kings chapter 2, I believe, uh, or chapter 1 and 2. Now, go to the next slide. Guess what happens to be right at that same location? Oh, yeah, you definitely can't read this. So this was taken off of Google Maps. Right here is Jericho, the darker blue or whatever that color is. And then right where that arrow is, that's Bethbara. That's the archaeological site where they found Bethbara. That's the same spot where Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind. Let me throw another thing out there. So what, is, what does that mean as far as what John the Baptist is doing? Well, that means that he is just like Elijah. And he's coming to call the people away from what Judaism had become in order to return to the Lord their God. Now, there's another way that we see John doing that same thing in his ministry right here at Bethbara or at Bethany beyond the Jordan. Guess what else happened in the same location? This is where the Jews entered the promised land. This is where Israel entered the promised land. 
What was the first town that they attacked once they crossed over the Jordan River? Jordan, or Jericho. They attacked Jericho. This is right where they crossed over. And so here, John the Baptist has positioned, by, by the direction of the Lord, by the movement of the Spirit of God, calling him to minister here, here is John the Baptist positioning himself just outside of the promised land and calling the Jews to come out from the promised land and submit to a baptism in the Jordan for a renewed relationship to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that crossing through the Jordan or crossing through water is likened to baptism. That's what John's doing here. He's calling them back to the beginning, in other words. He's calling them to let go of everything they had constructed about their relationship with God and return with genuineness to the commandment and the will of God revealed in his word. That's what John's doing here. And that's why it was so offensive. I mean, imagine, just, uh, this is dangerous. I don't have anything typed out. Who knows where I'm going? Imagine someone coming up to you and saying your entire life is a farce and you need to repent and be made right with God or you're going to hell. God's axe is laid at the root of your tree and if you don't bear fruit in keeping with repentance, you're going to be cut off. Imagine someone saying that to you. Even if you could recognize that it was true, even if, it were, even if it were true, it would still come across as being quite offensive. I've never been able to say something like that to anyone who looked at me and said, oh man, you're right. You're right. Thank you for saying that. Thank you for telling me that everything was fake and that I need to get real with God. Thank you. No, every time I've ever said anything like that to someone, there has been offense. That same kind of heart was in these, these people that John was ministering to, guys. It was offensive. This is the call of the gospel at the heart of it and the root of it. It's a call to self-renunciation. Self-renunciation. This is what John's baptism was. It was calling people to renounce all of their selves, all of themselves. Renounce everything that you're holding on to. You've got to let all of it go. Everything that you think is going to commend you before God, you've got to let it go and submit to the reality that you are not worthy of His salvation. You must submit to the reality that He needs to save you or you are not going to be saved. You must submit to the reality that you are an evil, God-hating sinner, no matter what you believe about your religion, and it must be repented of if you're ever going to be made right with God. That's what John's doing. That's what his baptism was doing. And that is at the heart of the gospel. That is the call of the gospel. If you will not repent and submit to salvation that's fully provided for you in Jesus Christ, you will die and go to hell. You will be cut off from the people of God, no matter what you think your status is right now. Boy, we can all fool ourselves. We can fool each other. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we're right with God when we're not. I did it for 16 years, or at least 
at least uh, 13 years of 16 years, from, or maybe 12. I was four when I believe the Lord called me to preach. So, just so you know. But I was still living in ignorance of God, and not, I did not know him. I thought I did. Two weeks before the Lord saved me, guess what I was doing? I was witnessing to my, the teammates on my football team. I wrote up a track. I gave it to them. I declared to them the gospel, and I wasn't even saved. They caught my nickname on the football team. Maybe I've shared this with you. My nickname on the football team was the preacher. Before I was saved. We can deceive ourselves, guys. The question is whether or not we have actual fruit of a living and vibrant relationship with God manifesting in our lives. And that fruit will include many things, but it will most definitely include a lifestyle of repentance where you are continuing to be deepened in your understanding of what sin is. And not only what sin is objectively outside of you, but what sin is subjectively. What sin is in your own life. What it means for you to struggle with sin. Some people struggle with sin with pornography. That's a very open, blatant sin, even though it's covered. They think it's hidden. Somebody knows what you're looking at. Definitely the Lord does. For some people, it's that. For some people, it's visiting prostitutes. For some people, it's lying on their tax forms. For others, it's lying to their neighbor. For others, it's stealing pencils and paper clips and money and, and, and whatever else you want to throw in the bucket there. You know what? For others, it's sitting in a, in a church pew filled with hypocrisy in your heart and putting a face on for everyone else. One fruit of being truly brought into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ is that he will not let you live in your sin. His name is at stake. The glory of our God is at stake in the way you live your life. You think he's going to leave that up to you to decide whether you want to follow him or not? No. He will ensure that you follow him because he will make you long to follow him. Being united to Christ in the gospel, one of the fruits of that is genuine repentance. All right, now where was I? Secondly, as we come to a close, why was John baptizing? Number one, John was baptizing in order to make straight the way of the Lord and to prepare the people to receive the Lord. To renounce all of everything that they were hoping in that was not of the Lord and to renew repentance unto, Christ, unto, the, unto, the one, unto, the, unto Yahweh and waiting on the one who is coming. There we go. Secondly, why was John baptizing? John was baptizing in order to reveal the one who was coming. He came baptizing, verse 27, in order to point to the one who was coming after him. Verse 30, he came to point to the one who was greater than John and the one who existed before John. And then in verse 33, I believe, or is it 31? Yep, 33. He came baptizing in order to manifest the one who would come baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is significant. Follow me here. We're almost done. Okay? All right? Yeah? All right. 
John came baptizing in order to manifest who the Messiah was. You see that in verse 31 as well, where it says, John says, I did not recognize him myself, but in order that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. There's great significance of what John is saying when he says, when he says in verse 26, John answered, why are you baptizing? John answered them saying, I baptize in water. There's great significance to what he's trying to communicate there. It's really emphatic in Greek. I baptize only in water is basically what John is saying. I baptize in water. Now put that in the context of the offense of the Jews. John is baptizing in water and he says in verse 26, oh, why am I baptizing? First of all, first of all, I am only baptizing in water. And if that is so disruptive to you, what will baptism in the Holy Spirit do? In the book of Acts, we see exactly what happens when the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit has come. We see that when he pours out the Holy Spirit upon his people, he disrupted the whole Jewish religious system. We see that their rules and their traditions, their comfortable status quo of religion, even the whole world, it says in Acts, was turned upside down as a result of being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 36, God promised that this is exactly what he would do in the lives of his people. That his spirit would cleanse his people from all of their defilement and from all of their sin and from all of their idols. He would fill them with such a love of God and such a love for God that they would actually mourn over all the ways that they've sinned against him. He would give his people a new heart and a renewed spirit, one that was no longer satisfied with status quo religion, but a heart that longed for the Lord and beat after his holy, righteous commandments that the Spirit of the Lord would come and walk with them and lead them into walking according to the commandments of the Lord, and it would be their greatest delight to walk in that fellowship and communion with Him. That would be the fruit of the Holy Spirit coming upon God's people. Now, when that happens to a person, it is intolerably disruptive to the world. When God fulfills in a person's life the promise to baptize them in the Holy Spirit, it is intolerably disruptive to the world. They will not abide it. Much more so is it disruptive to the religious world. Because now you're not only dealing with the affront of their ungodliness, but you're also, just by very nature of being filled with the Spirit of God, you are condemning those around you who are not. John says to these Levites and priests, you think, that I, you think that me baptizing in water is so offensive? You think that me baptizing in water is more than you are comfortable with? You just wait until the one who is greater than me comes. Wait until the Son of God comes, the one who will baptize His people in the Holy Spirit. That will be truly unsettling to you. That's what John's communicating to them. 
Not in a chaotic way, but it will be unsettling to them because it will bring the lives of God's people into right spiritual order. And that right spiritual order will forcefully confront the ways of the world. You need to understand that for you. Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? How would you know? How would you know? I remember being in a church in Indianapolis where the proof of being baptized in the Spirit was speaking in tongues. And I was suffering long with those brothers and sisters. But how would you know if you're baptized with the Spirit of God? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it prophesying? Well, when the Holy Spirit comes, let me give some evidence of what happens when he comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, he cuts through the facade of your life. You're no longer able to keep up those walls of falsehood around other people. Because the Spirit of the Lord's like a wrecking ball and knocks the whole wall down. He finally exposes you for what you are and who you are. He cleans out the vestiges of religious hypocrisy and he makes a people holy and sanctified for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. He keeps pressing upon us a lifestyle of repentance unto the forgiveness of sins. And even though that will never be accomplished or completed this side of eternity, it has been definitively begun in every single child of God. Meaning, there has been a definitive break in their relationship with sin. And there has been a definitive attachment to the righteous standards of the Lord. That is the fruit of the Holy Spirit being in your life. That is what the Holy Spirit accomplishes in us. And that's what John's getting at and saying, I baptize in water. And you think that's so offensive? You just wait until the Holy Spirit comes and sets the whole nation on fire. John knew, oh, man, this, is a, this is a major point. You know the shocking part of what John is saying to these Levites and these priests is, you know, the most shocking part of it, or at least I could imagine it being the most shocking part to me, was when John turns to them and says, I baptize in water, but among you stands one who is greater than me. In other words, John tells them, the one that I'm pointing to is already among you. And you don't even recognize it. You don't even see it. What an indictment against all of their self-proclaimed spiritual maturity and their conception of communion with the Lord. That the one whom the Lord had sent was already among them and they had not even yet recognized him. Now John himself admits he didn't know who it was. In verse 31 and 33, he didn't know who the Messiah was, but he knew that the Messiah had already come. And when he came, he would baptize, not with water, but he would baptize his people with the Holy Spirit. Now what would give him the ability to baptize sinners like us with the Spirit of the Lord? 
Why was this one who was coming able to bring the Spirit of God, the Spirit of holiness, down into our darkness and immerse sinners in Him? Well, verse 29 says it plainly. Because this one is the Lamb of God who would take all the darkness away. He's the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And it's because of His work for us that the Spirit of God can come upon us and He can baptize us with Him. I I pray that you know the joy of that reality. The freedom and the liberation that comes when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon you. May the Lord accomplish that more fully in each one of our lives and help us realize more fully the great work He's done for us in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, it's inevitable that it seems inevitable. We've said too much. And um, I thank you that you can use even the slightest bit of communication from me to bless your people and to strengthen their hearts in the truth and to help them walk by faith in the Lamb of God who takes away their sin. Lord, I pray that you would testify to us that we are children of God through the, through the ministry of your spirit, that we would know his glory and power much greater, that our lives would confront the darkness around us more forcefully in a way, just as evidence of you being in us, where we pray that you would sweep many sinners into the kingdom of Christ as a result of our lives and help us be faithful, Lord, right where you've planted us, in the ministry you've given to us, Help us be faithful to your will right there. And Lord, we will wait and we will watch expectantly for that reviving hand of the Spirit to move, upon, move among us. God, we ask this in Jesus' name. and We pray for his sake. Amen. All right, let's close with the benediction from 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Next week, we're going to come back to John 129 and look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Until then, may you walk in the fellowship of the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. May you go in peace.